One of the most impactful stats that I derived from all of this was learning that roughly one in five, roughly 20% of people asked in our study whether or not they'd spoken about this before. Those one in five, that 20% had never told a living soul. So there are many, many people out there who are keeping this to themselves. Welcome to the 39th episode of the Struggling Scientist podcast. This is a podcast by scientists, for scientists, anybody science adjacent, and perhaps even hobbyists. My name is Susanna, and I'm here with my co-host, Jerome. Hi. Today, we have a very interesting episode. We're going to talk about imposter syndrome. This is something a lot of scientists struggle with, and today we're talking with a scientist who wrote a book about it. He's a PI in Glasgow, a podcaster, YouTuber, blogger, and of course an author, namely Dr. Mark Reed. We'll talk with him about the imposter phenomenon, or imposter syndrome, as it's most commonly known, and the tips he has to deal with this. So let's start. Welcome to the podcast, Mark. We're very excited to have you here. I'm, uh, I'm delighted to be here. I'm excited also. And let's, let's give full context. It's kind of you to have me because I'm being attracted to fellow makers out there in the world. It was me who found you rather than the other way around. So <laughs> you've very kindly given your time to have a conversation. So thank you for having me. Yes, we always love to have a guest from all over the world. So uh, we're really happy to have you too. Thank you. Um, we're talking about imposter syndrome today because you wrote a book mm. about it. It's called yeah. You're Not a Fraud. Uh, and now before we get to know you a little bit better and go into the details, I just want to ask you what inspired you to write a book about this subject? Well, so we can sort of kill two birds with one stone, actually. There's, there's no way of getting around answering that without telling you a little bit about myself. And maybe we're jumping forward in that story a little bit, but I started it really back in 2015. Mm. That for me was the move out of my PhD lab. I, I did a PhD in chemistry. And in some ways, maintaining a traditional academic line, I was moving from that lab to my postdoc lab. But what I didn't really appreciate at the time was that was my first really pivotal career move. It was a move from one group of colleagues to another, one lab to another, one institution to another, and to a whole set of unknown circumstances that, looking back, I really wasn't mentally prepared for. Mm. And when, when that move happened, there was a lot of exciting science that got me there. However, it was... Back then in 2015, things like starting to notice that I was comparing myself more to these new people than I ever did those I'd become very, very familiar with in my PhD lab and starting to pay more attention to numbers and metrics and elements of being a scientist that, quite frankly, I had scarcely cared about in the past. These things were all coming to mind thick and fast and more often than I ever had appreciated before. Mm-hmm. And back then, I, I had no way to codify it. I didn't know there was any name behind feeling this sort of way. So that's really, in a nutshell, what inspired me to write it. But it was at the same time folded into the story of my career. It was a move in my career that didn't inspire me to write it back then, but inspired me to start thinking about these things that I didn't really know much about. It was a reflection in a diary long before it was a book. 
Mm-hmm. And did you already write it back then too? Or was that at a later point that you really started writing it down in the form of a... I wrote, but I didn't write a book. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. back then, so I mentioned 2015, so I was a postdoc for two years. And it was over the course of those two years that I was being more and made more and more aware every day of these feelings that were coming to me. And my only way of wanting to deal with it back then was to write in a private diary. So very soon after the start of that position, I would go home most, if not all days, crack open the laptop and start populating a a Word document with everything and anything that was in my head, Mm -hmm. quite simply and selfishly to get it out of my head. Um, I, I liked to think I was being perhaps stoic or in some ways, you know, showing some bravado to myself, not to tell anyone about it. And so this was my way to, as cheesy as it sounds, tell myself in order to see it in front of me rather than having it rattling around in my head. And it was towards the end of that two-year postdoc that I confided in a close friend to say that I've I've been writing this stuff to myself for two years. It's not in perfect prose. It's not always in English. Um, (laughs) It's just just rabblings. But then it was towards the end of those two years that some of the writing moved from being purely personal reflections to me almost writing very short reviews of things that I had seen out there in the world tools, tricks of the trade, things to manage these experiences. And I wanted to review them and bullet point them for myself. And it was only after that and talking to this friend that some of the ideas started to coalesce into little clusters. And it was they who then planted the seed that those clusters could be chapters. And it was after that that the adventure switched from being one of personal reflection to thinking about how I might turn it into something for someone other than me. I actually had a follow-up question on that because you sort of mentioned yeah. uh, journaling. Um, yeah. Did you start journaling as, when you sort of started feeling difficult about the, the work or was that already one of your hobbies or interests before? Uh... I had, that's a great question of, of timing. I had read about it a lot before. I never really had the nudge or till that point the real need for it. I appreciated why others might have used it, but um, you know, many of us learn quite selfishly, surely by experience. You will hear things of others' experience, but it won't truly sink in until it's your own. Mm-hmm. I, I joke about that often now because I've become the person who used to bore me. I've I've got two lovely little kids now. I used to listen to people talk about their kids all the time, and it meant absolutely nothing to me because I didn't have kids of my own. Mm. But now I have that experience, it means a lot more. That's a very loose analogy to what you're talking about, but such was the case with Mm. journaling. I'd heard about it before. I'd appreciated some of what others got out of it. I had no need for it until 2015. And it was thereafter when I started doing it that I, I saw the real value in it. And I've been doing it ever since. It's for slightly different reasons than it was back then. You know, I know what to call these things now. I've done a fair bit of work on it. But there's still, you know, challenges and pressures of my career as it evolves and my personal life as that evolves. And it's now just a daily tool to get stuff out of my head onto paper. Okay. And speaking a little bit about your personal life, could you tell us, well, 
uh, a little bit about yourself, so like where you live, uh, where did you study? Uh, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, more. yeah, of course. Well, offline we've joked a little bit about accents already, so <laughs> I hope everyone's following along with mine. But as this accent will give away to those who enjoy accents, I'm from Glasgow in Scotland originally. That's where I've circled back to as well. So uh, I was born in Glasgow, raised there, and studied at the University of Strathclyde for my chemistry degree, and actually stayed on to do my PhD at Strathclyde as well. You'll see a, a theme emerging very, very soon. I've I've been around. I've I've lived and worked in Germany and the US for short spells, but my uh, life and wants for a career have made all roads eventually circle back to Glasgow. So, with various positions in between, all of which can be read on bullet points on my website for those who really want it, I've uh, eventually been able to base myself back in Glasgow, back at the University of Strathclyde, and that's where I run my research team now. Um, I'm still a chemist. I have broadened my horizons quite significantly since my training, which has come with plenty of its own challenges and plenty of triggers for imposter experiences, I can tell you. But that's, um, that, that's the short version of the story. So from Glasgow, still there. I've been around a fair bit, but all roads have brought me home. So you often in your book call it the imposter phenomenon instead of imposter syndrome or even imposter experience. <laughs> Is yes. there a reason why you prefer one of the other? In short, either of those, just not syndrome. <laughs> and if if you troll anything that I have thrown out online, it will sound like I'm trying to flag for fly the flag for this more than most other things. But it's partly because in the process of writing the book, part of it really involved a deep dive into how language is constructed and the seeds that language and our choice of language can seed darker thoughts than you might consciously be aware of. Calling the feeling of being an imposter a syndrome is one such very pervasive instance of that fact. When you call it a syndrome, what you do without perhaps realizing it is linking your experience to something that is pathological. You link your experience to something that isn't yet defined as a disease that might well be on the way to being called a disease. It might be, through other connotations, something linked to physical as well as mental experience. But feeling like an imposter isn't a syndrome. It is not a syndrome. When it was originally coined, it's been known for a lot longer than it has been researched. But when it was coined to open the psychological field of study back in 1978, it was termed the imposter phenomenon. So if you like, the original term is imposter phenomenon. And that's in part because the researchers who coined the phrase knew then not to call it a syndrome. And in fact, Suzanne, you very astutely raised the alternative term experience. Because the researchers who coined phenomenon, uh, Pauline Rose Clance being the most famous among them, went so far in far later uh, keynote speeches to say that if they had their time again, they would go further than phenomenon and call it the imposter experience. But never syndrome for the reasons that I've laid out. Now, 
the thing that really was an itch for me to scratch right up until a few weeks really before publishing the first version of this book was why the hell anyone did call it syndrome in the first place and why has that become the term of choice consciously or not to cut a longer story short as far as i can find out there was a rather innocently written article and of all places, Vogue magazine back in the early 1980s, okay. which is the first instance where both imposter phenomenon and syndrome was uttered in the same paragraph. Phonetically, syndrome is far easier to say than phenomenon. I'll certainly struggle with phenomenon if I have any more than zero units of alcohol. <laughs> but things like that will make you search both trends in Google and see that there is no longer a competition. Syndrome is the thing that pervades popular culture. In the academic literature, they're both phenomenon and syndrome trotting along at the same pace. Both are used because in psychological circles, more psychologists know to call it a phenomenon rather than a syndrome. But I think for rather innocent reasons, that's why, you know, in popular culture, at least syndrome has run away with the game. Yeah. It also sounds darker as well, so it's it's easier to get engagement with that term. That's perhaps a more cynical take. But to wrap that up, I think if everyone listening forgets everything else that I have to say, remember that feeling like an imposter is not a syndrome. That is really the key message, and I think probably the first tool of many that you can use to manage your own individual experiences of feeling like a fraud. So maybe more a uh, general question. Do you think that the entire imposter experience can differ uh, in terms of its manifestation in people or is it, does it follow a similar path for everyone? Oh, okay. Um, great question, Jaron. So I used to think, okay, wait a minute, before I, I go on, what do you think first? Like, what would you, if you had to bet money on it, would you think that, the imposter phenomenon or whatever you want to call it is the same for everyone or different for everyone? I, what would you have thought going into it? I would say it's a sort of general, like under the yeah. umbrella term, I would say it's the same. Yes. But when you start looking at individual things, what makes people feel a certain way, I think it differs quite a bit. And I think maybe, because okay. uh, I also did the, the quiz or survey in your, in your book. Uh, uh -huh. yes. there was one thing that I didn't recognize at all, but I still scored quite high, uh, high with the imposter syndrome quiz. So. Can yeah. you remember roughly what you scored? That's something we can uh, yeah, around 84, on later. 85. 84, 85. Okay. Yeah. I'm putting a pin in that to come back to it. <laughs> uh, how about you, Suzanne? What, what was your take on this whole realm of experience? Ver general versus specific. Um, I think it's very different for different people. Um, okay. Cause I, I in in my PhD I don't struggle a lot with imposter syndrome. I am weirdly confident in some way. I I don't know where it comes from, but yeah, good I guess. Uh, yes, but, indeed. Uh, I have it in other parts of my life. For example, when we got a puppy, I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> that resonates for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. I definitely, I definitely do feel it, but in other parts of my life. So I think that's also why it's it's so different for different people because you feel insecure in different parts. I guess. I'm 
I'm super glad I asked actually because you've each touched on I think more profound underlying points. In short, you know, as folks can read in the book, I've leaned on this being far more individualized than I would have first thought. There are, to your point, Jaron, certainly elements of it that show you patterns of behavior that that make it the imposter experience and not anything else. In fact, when others came forward for our survey research that made up a part of the research element of the book that came after my own stories, there were a few, albeit rare instances, where people were coming forward, I think quite bravely, to start to explore their own self-awareness and had actually overlapped what they thought was imposter experiences with things like uh, low self-esteem or post-traumatic stress or just pure anxiety. It wasn't really in the the main camp of experiences that you would say are directly linked to the imposter phenomenon, but they were exploring that. So there's certainly a bit of a witch's brew of things going on. The more, if I can put it quite simply as a list of things that people might say, feeling like an imposter, I've because I thought we might come to this, I've, as I look to my side here, I've got a list of things that appeared in the book. It came out of the research and looking at what people had to say at an individual level of their experience. Mm-hmm. And there were a series of common things that people would say in one form of words or another. And using some natural language processing, we were able to distill it down into a top 10. So I, I would read all of them, but I'll read some of them. Mm-hmm. And you can see what resonates here. I don't know enough. I'm not good enough. I don't belong, and I'm not able. So those are different flavours of what people say when they do feel like imposters. Some of the evidence to show just how individual it can be is when, for example, when we looked at the open answers in the research at a deeper level, you can score what people say on metrics such as polarity or subjectivity. So how extremely one way or another are they talking about something and how opinionated versus fact-based is what they're saying. Mm. And for everything, every person, every story that came forward for this study that appeared in the book, all of it pointed to being highly individual, highly subjective. In other words, very much based on that person's own experience. There were over 800 people and therefore over 800 stories. So there was points of each story that wasn't ever the same for anyone else. But that being said, that's why it's individual, but that doesn't mean at the same time there there weren't some general trends in there, some of which I've mentioned in the, the phrases that I've read out. Other ways that you can approach the generality of it is there are certain categories of imposter that researchers have come up with over the years so there are, there are three that I can mention here. And this comes back to you, Jaron, because you've kindly shared what you scored on one scale of imposter experience. So, so there are three types of imposter. Your score out of 100 is in the 80s, so relatively high. So based on that alone, I could guess that you 
feel like an imposter in a certain environment mm. quite often. Yeah. Um, it can be more or less severe at times. Sometimes it's really severe, sometimes it's not, but it's, it's part of your human experience. It's there relatively often mm. and perhaps in one specific environment. So that is you. If you look at some of the categories of imposter, there is, for example, the workaholic imposter, the person who never lets up to celebrate a win, will perhaps prepare, prepare and over-prepare and let the pressure build up to a point of optimal procrastination before getting the job done. But as soon as the job is done, there is none of that celebration and you're very quickly going around what's called the imposter cycle to start all over again. So that would be the workaholic imposter. Another category, second one is uh, the agreeable imposter. I almost lost it there. So the agreeable imposter is someone who will fixate a lot on saying what they think others want to hear, um, reserve their opinions and try to be the people pleaser in the room because that's the mask that they want to wear to get them through the feeling of being a fraud. To, to survive what they think is the imminent moment where someone is going to point the finger, find them out and throw them out the room. Mm. The third and final category for now is the charismatic imposter. So someone who perhaps um, has the ability to lean heavily on their emotional intelligence and will appear charming and think that it's their elements of being able to be, um, to so as we would say in Glasgow, throw around the gift of the gab mm. to be able to, to talk confidently and to talk openly and to, to charm people into their way of thinking. Mm. But under the surface, that charismatic person can later put down their successes to that alone to say, I only got into this place because I was able to speak in this certain way. It was nothing to do with my technical ability, for example. Mm. We are very excited to be able to introduce you to our new sponsor, Jenny AI. Not only does Jenny make our podcast possible, it also makes our life as scientists so much easier. Jenny is an all-in-one writing assistant that has everything that we have been missing in other AI tools. Yes, first off, unlike other AI tools, it actually finds accurate information in papers and cites its sources. It does not make things up and only uses real verified information that you can then also check the source of. Second, it's a writing assistant trained for academic papers and helps you write your paper by suggesting the next sentence or the end of your sentence. Or, if you get really stuck, you can ask it to write an entire paragraph, completely removing the writer's block I so often struggle with when I don't know the right words to make my point. It helped me write an introduction to a paper I've been struggling with in half an hour. It even suggests which papers to cite. You can add your own library or search the entire internet for papers, just type the add symbol to easily add a reference and it gets automatically added to the reference list. And the last thing we absolutely love is that it has an AI chatbot that can see your document and give feedback on how to improve your manuscript. Or you can ask it questions, such as what are the potential therapeutic benefits of dot dot dot, and it will search through the papers for you for the answer. I can only say that my stress level has gone down significantly since I started using Jenny. Check out the free version now at thestrugglingscientist.com slash Jenny. And if you love it, use the code SCIENCE20 for a 20% discount. So I've said a lot there. So I'm circling back for the purpose of conversation to you, Jaron. 
Did any of those categories resonate with you, given your score that you shared? Uh, yes. Uh, this is, was actually, I was leaning towards this question, actually. Uh, is it possible okay. to be multiple of those categories? Yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so no, for you, yeah. what did you think? Uh, definitely number one and number two. Uh, I don't think I have that yes. much charisma. So, <laughs> so you, <laughs> you're the, the, the workaholic who tries to be agreeable. Yeah. Yes. Interesting. Yeah, I great. I would I, I, for you. Sorry, I interrupted there, Susan. No. So, Suzanne. So, for you, what did you think? I think in the areas of my life where I do sometimes feel like an imposter, I also try to overcompensate with like just working harder at it. And yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So there's there's something that actually threads the three of us together. If I was pushed. And I've, of course, tried to reflect a little bit on this in the book. I'm definitely very high on the workaholic side. I have a rather deeply embedded fear of failure. And that's one of the things that really fuels my own imposter experiences. One of the things that you said, Suzanne, that is um, a profound addition to any of this is that you've quite rightly highlighted the fact that it's a particular environmental experience for you. It's in one place and not another. It's in one part of your life and, and not another. And that's really another one of the, the key messages that I came to that, that surprised me when I started all of this about five years ago. I would have said the opposite, which is that academia is the privileged position here. That's the thing on the pedestal that drives all of these experiences. And it is just not the case whatsoever. I spent several chapters on the book, one in particular looking at managing failure and repeated rejection, where that is in the spotlight quite often in academia, and quite rightly so. If you think about grant proposals, paper rejections, and so on, it appears often in rejection as part of the game. But it can often be conflated with thinking that it's only in academia that that particular game plays out, and it's it's not the case whatsoever. So environment has a really profound role to play, and not just if someone feels like an imposter, but where they feel like an imposter. And being able to identify and codify that can be a good step towards using some of the tools to be able to manage these experiences so to end that with another example i said i'm a, a self-confessed workaholic that's one of the things that drives my own imposter experience mine most often play out in the workplace so as a pi in academia i compare myself to others all the time i'm more aware of it now than i was in the past and i'm more conscious of how much attention to pay to certain metrics now than I was in the past. But these things are still there. They happen a lot. And it's in that environment that all of these things play out, all of my imposter experiences play out. And it happens less often at home, like when I'm with my friends, for example, or doing other hobbies in my spare time where I'm perhaps not doing it as competitively and I don't have the same drive or the same triggers to set off a different type of imposter experience. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, I indeed think uh, that it's very personal way in which which types of environment uh, you have these experiences. 
Uh, so from reading your book, we know that there are quite a few steps in your journey, were quite a few mm. steps in your journey to learn uh, how to yeah. deal with what you were feeling. Um, what do you think were the most impactful things that you learned along the way? If you push me to say one thing, <laughs> I would say diving deep into the bigger picture perspective on everything. And I, uh, it sounds perhaps like I've poorly summarised every self-help book ever written. <laughs> <laughs> but there's, there's, there really is genuine reason for saying that. I think one of the the most important things I had to write for myself in the book is I, I opened chapter five, sharing a little bit of a letter to my daughter, a letter that she hasn't read yet because she's too young. But it was a letter I wrote around the time I was writing that chapter, but it was also, she was very young at the time, it was around the time of a naming day celebration for her. And it was my way to write to her some of the things I was finding out for myself, namely the chances of any of us ever being here, the chances of uh, these three bums being on seats to have this podcast right now are, are so ridiculously, stupidly astronomical that that in itself can be deeply, deeply empowering to manage the imposter experience enough to ride along with it and realise that to be able to feel like an imposter is in itself quite provocatively a privilege. So the, the letter I write to her is, is a way for me to express what being pushed to answer your question more concisely than I'm normally able is that having a perspective on how unlikely it is for you to be alive can be world changing. It certainly was for me. And when I'm giving seminars on this, I've shared a couple of them on YouTube now, but when I'm doing these live, I try to think about what chapter I'm going to focus on, you know, what story from the book or supplementary stories that weren't in the book will I tell for this particular audience and now that I've done a few of them I'm answering your question knowing that I've circled back to that one topic more often than other topics that in some ways there, there are for example just to put one more layer on this ways of looking at the story of you and how likely it was that your parents ever met times by all the odds of none of your direct ancestors ever perishing in the story of evolution. That and some other things all had to come together, give this number that say that you know, the odds of you being here right now, for anyone who's got the headphones in listening to this, is about 1 in 10 to the power of 3 billion. Right? And that's, there's only 10 to the power 80 atoms in the universe. Right, so it's a stupid number, it's a silly number, it's incomprehensible. But still, it's a back-of-the-envelope calculation that can be done to put in your mind how things could be any other way other than to have you here, breathing the air in front of you. That's a long answer to say one thing. The, the book itself has got like 17 other such challenges that try to put that in front of you. But the, this big picture perspective, I think, is the thing that will resonate with me longest in the longest term. I think also after reading your book, one that I also really liked is that there are real frauds in science. 
Ah, and yes. that they're nothing okay. like us at all. <laughs> I think it was also an interesting chapter. Oh, well, that's that's curious to hear you mention that. Thank you for doing so. So, you mentioned chapter four, which is genuine imposters, and that really is a an example of several chapters that aim to put in the spotlight terms that are hiding in plain sight. So you've quite beautifully helped us circle back to an earlier term. So I quite emphatically tried to dispel the term syndrome. And it's the first of those terms that you now mention. Imposter is the other word that hides in plain sight. And there are very few instances where you will see that term brought into the spotlight and questioned. And it's from that that you can build tools to really question for yourself, well, are you? Uh, am I an imposter? Um, what does a fraud actually look like? How is that defined? Where are the, the dark, spine-chilling stories in the world of genuine fraud? Because then from that comes the most difficult question, right? Now, am I truly comparing myself to you know the, the Bernie Madoffs of the world? or the priests that do unmentionable things, or the people who steal for various reasons. You know, there are are a million such stories. I go in depth in the book to several stories that most resonated with me. Being a scientist, to speak about things like Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos, stories that have become popularised in the past few years. But there are other stories in the art world and the, the many instances of art fraud and how that in itself can reveal different classes of imposter under the hood as well. But it's difficult questions like that that, if answered, can start to really help you manage this imposter experience, which could always, always, always pop up in different ways in your life. But having answered the difficult questions once, they'll be easier to answer a second time or a third time. So sort of in line with that, you also mentioned in your book about uh, a tip to question your brain. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> yes. Can you elaborate a little bit what you mean by that uh, and how, how it helps? Questioning your brain. If you dive back long enough in time to hear earlier attempts by me to talk about this whole thing while I was writing the book, while I was still researching, while I, I didn't have a bloody clue what any of this was, you will hear plenty of mistakes in my own understanding of what it means to question the brain. I'm still learning a lot. And again, I'm not a psychologist, I'm a chemist. <laughs> I worked quite closely with some psychologists to peer review my own methods before writing the book. But that's a side note to say that in earlier times, I might, like many people carrying popularisms from the 20th century believe that there was someone else, someone more primitive, someone from my cave-dwelling past inside my head that at times of panic is the one who is pulling all the levers and pulling all the strings. But there are really insightful elements of modern neuroscience which really flip the script on all of that and show that there are telltale signs of how, for example, emotions are made that give very, very strong clues that point away from all of the things that we think are commonplace, that point away from things like thinking that you have a chimp inside your head or that the lizard brain 
is in the driving seat during times of panic. So there's a, there's there are many elements to this. Um, from a little bit that I, I highlighted earlier, I've got a little passage from the book that if I can be so bold, I would like to read for you. Would that help? Sure. Thank you. Your emotions are not universally expressed or recognized by others, nor are these emotions primitively automated reactions to the outside world. Emotions have no irreducible fingerprint shared by everyone everywhere. Unless you're from Portugal, you probably have never experienced the exact emotion of Desbundar to shed your inhibition and have fun. If you're not German, you might never have been able to exactly express a Sehnsucht, a feeling of longing for an alternative state of affairs. And if you're from outside certain regions of the Middle East, it's likely never occurred to you to say you're feeling tarab, a musically induced state of pure ecstasy. The same goes for facial expression. In the West, a simple smile might express happiness, whereas in the East, the same expression is more likely to be used as a sign of respect or to hide some other emotion. In countries like Japan, people read faces with the eyes more so than in the West, where the eyebrows and the mouth do more of the heavy lifting. This is why it's harder to fake a smile in the East than it is in the West. So that comes to a very specific element of questioning your brain, which relates to imposter experiences, which is how well does your face tell the story of how you're actually feeling? And this is really important for what I found out on this journey to write about the imposter experience, because firstly, in the research, we to come back to the score that you had given yourself, Jaron, mm -hmm. as well as that story, there were open answer questions for people to tell their own story. But there was also a question to say, can you link your written experience with one of nine emojis? You know, as a simple metric to, you know, point to certain facial expressions, uh, an open smile, a closed smile, a straight face, a grimace, a blushing face. Mm -hmm. Uh, a sad face, a crying face, and so on. A question, maybe not for you because you've been so kind as to read the book, but let me ask it anyway in case others in the audience are thinking about it. For higher scores of feeling like an imposter, for those in the, the 70s, 80s, 90s out of 100, what sort of emojis do you think people would link to an imposter experience of that level? Um, <laughs> I would say no, I, stress, maybe? Stress, okay. So if you were on your phone, what little yellow smiley or other sort of face would you be putting down there? The, the screaming face emoji. The screaming <laughs> face, right? <laughs> How poetic. How about you, Jaron? Uh, I I would be inclined to go with the screaming face emoji, honestly. <laughs> right. Yes, and it's it's quite a a colourful one as well. There's there's blues in there as well, if I remember correctly. <laughs> at least <laughs> at least in the UK, that's how it looks. Um, yeah. Okay. So the interesting thing there is, and it'd be interesting 
if, if we could only hear what the audience is thinking, right? But you've, you've both landed on what we might argue is the same or similar sorts of emoji. Higher scores of feeling like an imposter might encourage people to use particular emojis and not other ones. But very soon after that passage that I've just read out, I show some of the data that we got back in this study, which shows that for a particular emoji, there are actually quite a spread of scores. It's not the case that everyone who feels very, very strongly like an imposter a lot of the time would necessarily use those emojis that you would think of as being sad or stressed. Many people, for example, would put a straight face, no emotion whatsoever. And when you look at counterintuitive trends like that, it's very consistent with a lot of the research that I've alluded to in that passage, which is to say that for certain emotions, certain facial expressions, these are not universal fingerprints. There is no way, be it on Zoom or in real life, for me to tell exactly how each of you are feeling at the moment. In fact, I'm quite nervous because I have no idea how either <laughs> of you are feeling, right? But importantly for something like the imposter experiences, now imagine that the tables have turned and you're not the person feeling it, but the leader who has someone in their care who is feeling it. So this is why I've closed the book with an epilogue that is all about principles for leaders. Because you might assume that you know how someone is feeling, but especially for very common human experiences like the imposter phenomenon, again, not a syndrome, someone might never say it. Now, if I think about one of the most one of the most impactful stats that I derived from all of this was learning that roughly one in five, roughly 20% of people asked in our study whether or not they'd spoken about this before. Those one in five, that 20% had never told a living soul. So there are many, many people out there who are keeping this to themselves. Many people who would never show it on their face wouldn't dare utter it aloud. So to have an awareness, not just of these you know, lovely intricacies of psychology and how well we can hide these feelings, not just knowing them for the sake of it, but knowing them because they are tools not just for you to manage your own imposter experience, but to be a leader of others who might feel that way so that you don't glibly say, I know how you're feeling because the chances are you've got no idea. Do you find yourself using this uh, a lot as well now that you're a PI? Uh... Oh, almost religiously. <laughs> not, not that, that almost sounds uh, deeply narcissistic. I don't mean that in that I'm going into group meetings and, um, you know, <laughs> reading from my own book as if it's some sort of gospel. I, I wouldn't dare. <laughs> People in the group uh, have free copies of my book, but we never really speak about it. What I do often is experiment with different things, be it in group meetings or one-to-one -one meetings, to help me find my way towards being a better leader. I've had many experiences and exposures to different leadership styles throughout my career. Bits of them have been truly inspiring. Others, I would never want yeah. to mention them ever again. And so it's trying to synthesize your own style by finding the best bits of your own experience. But whether or not you've got a rich experience in your past, you can come up with many experiments to create your own experience and your own style. This is why 
you know, before I ever had the, the book or podcast or any of that sort of stuff, I was writing a blog just to figure things out. I'm a very different leader now in 2022 than I was when I started as a junior PI back in 2017. But it's all come from trying things out, from learning more, yes, a little bit from writing this book, but trying many experiments and all the while having this awareness that I should never, ever generalize. There is no one size fits all solution. And you have to think about that often when you're running a research team where turnover is naturally quite high. There are always new people coming in and leaving, and therefore your style always has to adapt to the people who are in front of you because their stories to get to there are different from yours and different from anyone else you've ever encountered before. Yeah, I can imagine that that's really difficult to help people with such different experiences. Yeah. Um, yeah, that is. Yeah. So what is the, well, we've of course talked already about a lot of different points, but what is the advice that you would give our listeners that are suffering from the imposter experience in their science career? <laughs> Buy your book. <laughs> <laughs> right. Suzanne said it, not me. <laughs> the setup. Yes. <laughs> wow. What one thing. Failure is part of the footpath. Um, failure isn't something to be ashamed of, but to treat as an experiment. Whether it happens for papers, for grants, for conferences, it will happen. It's not whether or not you will fail, it's that you can over and over again. So it's a data set to be harnessed, not something to be hidden. I like that. Okay. Okay. So um, thank you so much for talking with us today. Uh, we have learned a lot and hopefully our listeners do. Do you have any social media handles or websites you would like to share with our audience so that they can find you? Uh, yeah, sure. Well, firstly, thank you again for having me. I think these conversations help bring out in me things that could so easily have been scripted, but you've, you've pushed me <laughs> to say what I think are the most important things. And you've, you've been the one that's put the, the book out there for <laughs> me without me ever doing it. So thank you, Suzanne, for doing that. If people want to learn more either about myself or the book, the easiest place to start is my website, which is um, dr-merc-reid.com dr-mark-read.com it's forward slash book if you want to find more about the book and you'll find my things like my twitter handle there as well which is at read underscore indeed and all all other social platforms on which we have to tick the box <laughs> and our social media handles are of course jaron uh yes we're available on twitter instagram facebook and a little bit on pinterest and you can also check out our newsletter and uh yeah, and check well, out our website and our amazing it. work. Yes. Soon also a Christmas sweater. So we're very excited about that. Ooh. Um, <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for uh, listening and hope to see you all next time. Bye. Bye.